Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This morning we'll begin with Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 and then look into chapter 2 as well. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 and then into Ecclesiastes 2. Just a quick reminder while you're finding your place there in the book of Ecclesiastes, our discipleship classes kick off this evening at 4 p.m. So take note of that time. It's a new time. Uh, for our discipleship classes to start. So uh, if you haven't signed up for one, there's still the opportunity to do so as you leave. Uh, today, following the service, you can go by the ministry desk just outside the sanctuary across from the cafe, and uh, you'll find some more information regarding the classes that are being offered. And uh, we'll just encourage you, uh, sign up and join us for one of those classes. It's a great opportunity to go deeper in your faith in a particular area, uh, but it's also a great opportunity to enjoy fellowship with other members of the faith family in a smaller setting, Maybe sit in a class with some other people that you uh, maybe have not had the opportunity to know real well, get to know them, and to encourage one another uh, in the faith. So I hope that you'll make plans to be here with us this evening, 4 p.m. as the discipleship classes kick off. Well, this morning, we're continuing with our new sermon series, studying through the book of Ecclesiastes. And last week, we discovered that uh, Ecclesiastes is quite a different book than most in the Bible, and part of the difference is noted in its composition. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll note that it is uh, composed in part of poetry, part proverbs, and philosophical musing, and then it's all wrapped up in a personal testimony. And our text this morning takes us into the main body of the book as the narrator, the author of the book, presents us with the words of the preacher, presumably Solomon, as he endeavors to explore life under the sun. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read God's Word, beginning with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. You follow along as I read. Hear the Word of God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray once more. Our Heavenly Father, we give our thanks to you now for this, your holy word. And Lord, we do ask and pray that you would bless the reading and the proclamation of your word today. Father, may your word be like a hammer that would break our hearts into pieces. Father, may it be like a fire that would consume our bones. Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, so may it pierce the very depths of our soul today. And Father, I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to proclaim your word. And I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit for those who sit before me to hear your word. And so, Lord, would you give us eyes that we may see, ears that we may hear, and hearts that will be soft to believe and obey your word today. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening verse of our text today, the preacher now formally introduces himself to us. Last Sundays, we began the series, we looked at the introduction, the prologue given to us by the narrator, where he informs us that he will be uh, revealing to us the words of the preacher, and now we come to those words. And even as we saw last Sunday, again in verse 12, 
the preacher is king over Israel in Jerusalem. And according to verse 16, he has acquired great wisdom, so much so that he surpasses all who came before him. And again, while unnamed, this does seem to me at least to be a fitting description of King Solomon, son of David. He did in fact rule over all Israel from Jerusalem and was gifted incredible wisdom by God. You remember the story of Solomon. We read about it in 1 Kings 3. The Lord said that he would give Solomon the desire of his heart and Solomon requested wisdom from the Lord. And in 1 Kings 3 verses 12 and 13, the Lord said, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. That seems to fit with our preacher in Ecclesiastes. And in light of that, what I believe we have here now as we come to the the main body of the book of Ecclesiastes is a reflection from Solomon as he is seeking to apply his superlative wisdom to understand life in this world as we know it. This is what he refers to as life under heaven or life under the sun. It's life, as we talked about last week, that's in a world after Eden. It's life lived east of Eden. It's life in a a broken world. This is reality set before us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's life in a world where we feel the curse and the impact of sin each and every day. There's a startling beginning here from the preacher in verse 13. He refers to this life under the sun as an unhappy business given to man by God himself. Now that's a startling statement, one that may be surprising for us. But the reality is is that he's not wrong in that assessment. As we saw last week in, in Romans 8, God, because of man's sin, has subjected the entire world to futility, to vanity. It's the same word that the preacher in Ecclesiastes uses. And that's the cry of the preacher here before us. All is vain. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And now he's seeking to expand upon that. He gives us even more clarification on what he means. He tells us here in our text today that this vanity that we all know, this vanity that we all face, it's like a striving after wind. Striving after wind. If you were listening carefully, looking carefully as we read the text this morning, you would have noticed that five times that phrase, striving after wind, appears in our passage And it's really an interesting phrase that the preacher uses. It literally means in the Hebrew language, to shepherd the wind. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's like shepherding the wind. Perhaps you would be a little bit more familiar with our modern expression along the same line. It's like herding cats. It's impossible. You simply can't achieve it. That's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is proclaiming here. Life under the sun is an impossible task. You can't chase the wind. You can't catch the wind. You can't herd cats. It's an impossible task that God has given to us. But what brings him to this place of frustration in his life? It's the question we've got to ask. 
Why would he, why would he drive home such a, a strong point? Well, he gives us a hint here in the passage. Solomon has realized that there's nothing that he can do, even as the wisest of men, that can bring back the perfection that we long for in this life. It resides in every one of your hearts today, this understanding that this world is not the way that it should be. Solomon wants to to recreate that. He wants to discover what has been lost. It's what he wants, and it's what we want as well. Solomon gives us a clue of that as he unpacks his frustration. We we read over chapter 2, and especially in verse 5, we see this phrase as he is going about some great exploits and a lot of building projects that he has undertaken to to seemingly find meaning in life. But in chapter 2, verse 5, he tells us that he planted all kinds of fruit trees. I know what you may be thinking. That's seemingly insignificant. Maybe he just liked apples and pears and maybe blueberries, peaches. We, we don't really know. He just wanted some fruit trees on his property. Some of you have done that with your property as well. But we need to listen to that, that phrase carefully because it's an echo that we find all the way back in the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God is creating and forming the world, and then he fills the Garden of Eden. As he goes about that, what we read in Genesis 1 several times is that he planted within the garden all kinds of fruit trees. And he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden all kinds of fruit of which they could eat and enjoy and be sustained. So it seems here that Solomon is undertaking the idea that maybe... Maybe he can get it back to the way it used to be. Maybe he can get us back to Eden. But ultimately, he discovers that's a striving after wind. That's a herding of cats. That's an impossible task. And he comes to that conclusion early on in verse 15. He issues a proverb. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. In essence, what Solomon is saying is that the world is bent and broken. And no matter how hard we may strive, no matter how much effort we put into it, we can't unbend the brokenness of this world. Solomon essentially says in the last half of verse 15, you can't count what's not there. He says you can't do it. It can't be done. Such is the attempt of any man in this life to find the perfection and satisfaction that he's longing for. We're succumbed to a life and a world that is broken and all the misery that it brings. And again, the dark note of Ecclesiastes rings ever so loud from its pages. Now, in similar fashion to the narrator last Sunday, at the beginning of chapter 1, Solomon here gives his statement, his argument, his thesis up front. What's crooked can't be made straight. It's striving after wind. But that didn't stop Solomon from attempting. It didn't stop him from trying to set things straight and trying to figure things out. He wanted to discover how he might escape the futility of life in a broken world. That's what he's attempting to do as we read this passage this morning. And for us, we oftentimes try the same thing. What can we do to escape this world that we find ourselves in? Maybe I can watch enough shows on Netflix. Maybe just another pint of ice cream. 
Maybe one more drink, one more look at social media. Maybe something can at least dull me from what's reality. Solomon takes up that effort. There's two sections that we need to look at in the text. There's there's two points to the preacher's message here before us in chapters 1 and chapters 2. First of all, we need to look at what I refer to as the preacher's test. The preacher's test. This is the, the heart of our passage today. And this is Solomon's attempt to see if he can make things straight, if he can find meaning in this world. He tells us in verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Again, this is the the framework in which Solomon is operating. He's looking at things from a merely earthly perspective. And he's going to apply his heart and all the wisdom that he has to see if he can make sense of it. That word applied there is literally the word test. So Solomon, in essence, is going to take up some experiments. In fact, he's going to take up three experiments. He's going to try three trials to see if they can bring about any, any straightening in this life for him. The first test that he employs is at the end of chapter 1, and then he refers to it again in the middle of chapter 2, and it's what we might call enlightenment. Enlightenment. Solomon sets about to see if wisdom can make sense of the world and make things right. He says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over, uh, over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I test my heart. I applied my heart to know wisdom. Solomon set about to engage in wise living under the sun. Now, let me be clear here. There's nothing wrong with wisdom. But we need to remember that there are two types of wisdom of which the Bible speaks. There's a wisdom that comes from above and there's a wisdom that comes from below. There's a heavenly wisdom and an earthly wisdom, James chapter 3. And I would remind you that Solomon here is going about looking at things from an earthly perspective. So the wisdom that he's seeking to employ here isn't necessarily a heavenly one. He's seeking to determine if man's wisdom can somehow alleviate man's problems. That earthly wisdom can make everything right. And this is really nothing new at all. This is the same tactic that Satan used there in the garden to tempt Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, as the serpent came to the woman, he told her, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, listen to this, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What was part of the temptation that allured Eve to partake of the, of the, of the fruit that God had forbidden? The desire to be wise. Surely if I can have wisdom, things will make sense. But just as Adam and Eve learn, so does Solomon. Wisdom simply won't work. And Solomon lays out two reasons why that's the case. In verse 18, again, another proverb, he says, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What Solomon discovered that by pursuing wisdom, how to live right according to man's ways, is that it simply compounds the matter. It leads to more vexation. And you know this. Because you know the phrase, you've used the phrase, ignorance 
is bliss. Right? You understand what you mean by that. That person doesn't know anything, therefore they don't worry about anything. But Solomon says the more that he gained in wisdom, the more he sought wisdom to make things right in this world, it simply made it even worse. The more you know, the more sorrow you come to know. The illustration of a parent and a teenager fits so appropriately here. Those of you who have teenagers, you'll know this. Those of you who were teenagers and can remember it, you'll know this as well. You somehow think you have it all figured out. You have life laid out before you. You've made sense of this world, but the parent understands. They've got far more wisdom. They've walked in many more ways, and they know the choice, the decision that you're soon to make is going to lead you to a whole lot more frustration. Wisdom taught them that. Knowledge led them to that. It simply increased their understanding of sorrow. But then in the middle of chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Solomon again returns to this experiment of wisdom. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom. And he says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Again, he was the wisest to ever rule. There's none who would come uh, before or after who would know more. And Solomon understood, verse 13, that there was gain in wisdom when compared to folly. There's gain in doing things right instead of doing things according to foolishness. Wisdom is good, he says. It gives us light to walk in this world. And of course, it's better to walk in the light than in darkness. I love how he puts it in verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Solomon says, yes, there's a difference in walking through life with wisdom or foolishness. The foolish person is is in the dark, stumbling around. The wise person, even according to wisdom under the sun, seemingly can get some things figured out. But Solomon then understands ultimately, that both the wise man and the foolish man in this world die, and neither is remembered. The end of the wise is the same as the end of the fool. Neither have a remembrance. And so Solomon draws this conclusion, verse 17, that he hated life. It was grievous to him because all of the evil that he was facing in a broken world and wisdom could do nothing to solve it. It was simply vanity and striving after the wind. Earthly wisdom won't fix it. So Solomon sets about another test. This time, he puts his heart toward enjoyment or pleasure. This is verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. Solomon has attempted wisdom. That didn't cut it. So now he says uh, in in chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And in these 11 verses, as one commentator put it, Solomon sets out on a scavenger hunt for happiness. He's looking to find happiness in anything that this world can offer. He refers to this as madness and folly, chapter 1, verse 17. Now, this is not the madness of insanity, but rather it's the madness of immorality, where he takes good things and makes them God things, which then become enslaving things in his life. He gives himself over to self-indulgence and pleasure. It's amazing when you read the words of the preacher in our text this morning, how often... He refers to himself in the first person, I. 
I, 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 I. And you discover that he's incredibly myoptic, but he's looking at nothing but himself and thinking of nothing but himself. There's a striking parallel of this passage in a parable that Jesus tells in the New Testament in Luke chapter 12. It's the parable of the rich fool. Remember that story? Jesus blesses the the crops of this man and he has a harvest the likes of which he has never seen so much so he has nowhere to store it so he tears down the barns that he has he builds bigger barns and he says man my my soul is set my life is good he uses the same reference I I I I and he says to myself I'm going to eat drink and be merry and that night the Lord appeared to him and said you fool tonight your soul shall be required of you and these things Whose then shall they be? Oh, that's drawn here from the the preacher of Ecclesiastes. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, that he withdrew his heart from no pleasure. Anything that his eyes saw, anything that he desired, he gave himself to under the sun. This is what John says in 1 John 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's what Solomon goes after here. Worldly allurements. Here in chapter 2, in the first 11 verses, he puts his hand to eight things. In chapter 2, verse 2, he looks at laughter. He says, I gave my heart over to laughter. And he says, it is mad. Now, I know what you're thinking. The Bible says laughter is good medicine. It's good to laugh. We enjoy laughing with our family, with our friends. We enjoy a good, a good joke. We know that laughter can, can lift our spirits. But here, what Solomon is getting at is that he simply made all of life one big joke. Nothing was serious. And you know some people like that in your lives, don't you? There's nothing serious about life. It's all fun. It's all games. It's just one big party for them. And Solomon says that way of life led to nothing. In verse 3 of chapter 2, he gives his attention to alcohol. He says, I I search my heart with how to cheer my body with wine. And he says that too was folly. In chapter 2, verse 4, he turns his attention to art. He made great works. He built houses. He planted vineyards. All of this was vanity. He comes to verses 5 and 6, and he gives attention to nature. He plants gardens. He puts in them all kinds of fruit trees. He makes pools with which to water uh, the forest of growing trees. All of that led to vanity. He comes to verse 7, verse 8. He gave himself over to possessions. He says, I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, he gathered himself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. These were the surrounding kings and kingdoms that were paying duty to Solomon. He was acquiring more than anybody had ever seen. And Solomon said all of that was vanity. Well, we do the same thing. I heard an interesting number this past week. The average American household has 300,000 items in it. Some of you go way past that. Way past that. We have all this stuff. We have an epidemic of stuff. 
And we have all of this stuff because we think this stuff is going to bring joy and meaning to our lives. But the reality of having so much stuff should be a message to us that stuff can never satisfy the longing of our hearts. And if that's not enough to convince you, I wonder what are the kids or grandkids doing today with the presents you gave them on Christmas? Then he turns his attention to music. Verse 8, he says, I got me some singers, men and women singers. Now we're thinking, what in the world is this? What's this guy talking about? Solomon bought himself a choir. He had a choir. Now, we, we don't take this uh, the way that Solomon would have because we have such access to music today. I mean, we carry it in our pockets. We've got playlists. We've got Spotify. We've got Pandora. We, we've got uninhibited access to music just about everywhere. But it wasn't that way in Solomon's day. Music was a rarity, a luxury. But Solomon had so much that he said, you know what? I want music anytime I want music. So he just went out and bought himself a band. And anytime he wanted them to sing, they sang for him. Solomon said, you know what? That didn't satisfy. And then in verse 8, he gave himself over to sexual pleasure. Many concubines. Oh, we read about the wives and the concubines of Solomon in the book of Kings. But even this, he said, brought no satisfaction. Verses 10 through 11. He says, I found no pleasure in these things. He said, oh yeah, it was pleasing while I was engaging in them. And yeah, going after these things to chase was kind of fun. But when it was all said and done, it was fleeting. It was a shepherding of the wind. It ultimately amounted to nothing. The cycle that the narrator introduced us to in chapter one was just ongoing in Solomon's life. It was just continually turning new things and new things and new things, but no thing could change the vanity that he was experiencing. What we learn here of this experiment of Solomon to pursue pleasure is that the only thing worse than your dreams not coming true is when they do. And then you realize that that dream that you held on to ultimately can't satisfy your heart. If I can just get that job, if I can just make this much money, if I can just have a house like that, if I can just have a, a boyfriend like that, or if I can have a girlfriend like that, or if people will notice me like this, if I can just have this, then I'll be happy. That may be your dream, but listen to me, that dream won't satisfy you. Your wanter will always want more. Solomon's did. And he said, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. And then he goes to the third test, his third experiment. He's looked at enlightenment, wisdom. He's looked at enjoyment, pleasure. And now he seeks to test achievement, work. He gives himself over to work. And he's thinking that maybe his labor is going to add up in the end. He's a hard and industrious guy. He's going to put his hand to the plow, but he ultimately discovers that it's just like plowing water. Nothing's accomplished. In verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Didn't take him long to come to the conclusion. He says, giving yourself over to achievement, to work, to project, it simply won't suffice. And he says, there's, there's two reasons for it. He said, first of all, the work that you do will one day be handed over to another. 
No matter what type of work you do or how good of a job you may do, no matter what success you may find in the work that you undertake, ultimately, it's going to be passed on to someone else. He says, I'm going to leave it to the man who will come after me. And Solomon says, I don't know what kind of man he's going to be. He may be wise or he may be a fool. But even if it's according to earthly wisdom, that will not get him anywhere. He says, I'm going to give all that I've acquired over to someone who has not lifted a finger to accomplish anything. He says, this is nothing but vexation. Just vexed his soul. And this discovery for Solomon about seeking to find relief and achievement ultimately became a reality for him. The Bible teaches us that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who would rule after Solomon's passing, that in just a short period of time, he would lose 80% of what Solomon had built and governed over in Israel. For under Rehoboam's rule, the kingdom of Israel would be divided. It was a living out of what Solomon preaches here. Solomon says, my work's going to be handed to someone else. But then he also says, Verses 22 through 23 in relation to the experiment of work. What we all know, work is hard. Work is hard. Now you find something you love to do, and you'll never work a day in your life. Are you kidding me? I love what I do. I love opening God's word and proclaiming God's word. I love pastoring. Love it with all of my heart. But my goodness, it is work. And it is hard work. And you know that about what you do as well. And maybe it's not just the work that you do when you punch the clock Monday through Friday. Maybe it's just the work that we have to undertake in life. I love my kids. But guess what? Their work. And sometimes they're hard work. I love my wife with all of my heart. Oh, I wish I could relay our story to you again this morning. Sweep you all off of your feet just as I swept her. But here's what I know. I love her with all of my heart, but our marriage is work. And sometimes it's hard work. Why? Because we live in a world under the sun. We live in a world that is crooked and as hard as we try, we can't bend it back straight. Solomon says, all this toil that I did, the striving of my heart, he said, all it led me to was sorrow and vexation. He said, even in the night, my heart could not rest. You know that. How many times have you tried to sleep at night only to be awakened about what you've got to do tomorrow? The tasks that remain unfulfilled or the tasks that must get accomplished. It weighs upon us, and Solomon says, trying to find satisfaction through achievement simply won't cut it. His three experiments, his three attempts to find meaning under the sun. And then we come to his second point, the preacher's conclusion. It's the last verses here of chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. He's run the trials, he's done the tests, the experiment's now finished, and he draws his conclusion. He, he makes his judgment, and it's quite surprising. It's quite surprising. These verses, Leland Ryken says, are an oasis in the wasteland 
of Ecclesiastes. He says in verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. What? I just spent the last 25 minutes telling you that Solomon undertook the test of wisdom, enjoyment, and work to try to set things straight in this world. And he said all of that was futile. And now Solomon says, guess what? Take up your toil. Eat, drink, be merry. This is what you should find enjoyment in. What is he getting at? Well, let's read a little bit further. The end of verse 24. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And this is startling here. Because it's here that we discover that all is in fact not meaningless in life. Now that's the theme of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, everything is pointless, everything is meaningless. Solomon has repeated that uh, ad nauseum, nauseum here in the text before us. But think about it for just a second. The statement, all is vanity, is the similar, a similar statement to someone putting before you that there is no such thing as absolute truth. To make the statement that there is no such thing as, an, as absolute truth is an illogical fallacy. Because in that statement, someone is putting forth to you a truth, a proposition. They're making a truth claim that there is no truth, which in itself is a truth claim, which by very definition is illogical. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is akin to that. The preacher has proclaimed everything is meaningless. But in that very phrase, he's trying to communicate some meaning, is he not? He's trying to convey some message that we must see and know and understand and grab onto. So there must be meaning. The conclusion of his test, the preacher mentions God again in the passage, but it's different. It's different. The first mentioning that we find of God in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is back there in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13. Where God is the source of the vanity that we find ourselves living in. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Trying to find meaning in a world that is broke. But now, after his test, after his experiment, as he draws his judgment, he comes back to God again. But he sees him not as the source of the problem this time, but the solution of it. And Solomon reminds us that you know what the things that i've explored wisdom and pleasure and work these things aren't wrong but apart from god they're pointless apart from him there's no enjoyment to be found in the things under the sun and so Solomon tells us that we must relate to these things in the right way and how we do that is determined by how we relate to god and in verse 26, Solomon gives us the key. He says these things must be enjoyed in relation to God. He says through Him we can have enjoyment. And then verse 26, for to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, 
He is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So Solomon says there's two ways that you can relate to God in this life. As one who pleases Him or as a sinner. As one who pleases Him or as a sinner. Now yes, As believers, when we walk with God, we enjoy the blessings of God. Our walk with Him pleases Him, yes. But don't be too quick here. Because I think when we read this, that's where we want to go. Well, I just need to to walk with God. And if I walk with God, then God's going to give me blessings in this life and everything's going to be good. If that's your take, you need to go read the book of Job. Because Job was a righteous man in all of his ways. And guess what? Life under this sun for Job was incredibly, incredibly hard. So we can't be too quick. And I say that because I don't think that's how Solomon wants us to read his conclusion. Why do I say that? Well, look at the conclusion that Solomon draws. The end of the verse This also is vanity and a striving after when Solomon is left right where he began. Even after he sees God as the solution to the issue. As he sees these two ways in which we relate to God as one who pleases him and enjoys wisdom and knowledge and joy, or as a sinner who's given the business of gathering and collecting under the sun, which is vanity. Well, why would Solomon come to that conclusion? Well, let me ask it to you this way. I wonder, which group are you in today? Are you in the group that pleases God? Or are you in the group of sinner? Now, don't go to Sunday school and give me the answer. I really need you to think about this, because Solomon did. Solomon knew which group he belonged to. And Solomon knew which group we all belong to. And let me remind you, it ain't the group that pleases God. Because Paul tells us in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you understand why Solomon comes to this conclusion There's two ways. We can either please God or we can be sinners. But Solomon knows good and well, I'm nothing but a sinner. And as a sinner in this life, all it leads to is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's no meaning, no enjoyment, no satisfaction. That is given only to the one who pleases God. To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And it's here where the preacher begins to really preach. It's here where the preacher begins to drive his message home. And what we discover is, lo and behold, that wrapped in this message of meaningless and vanity and shepherding the wind is a gospel message. That the preacher is not just preaching a message of meaningless news, but rather one of magnificent news. Because it's here that Solomon is pointing us away from ourselves, away from ourselves as sinners unable to please God, and toward the one who did and does please God, Jesus Christ, His Son. 
Do you remember there at the banks of the Jordan River? As John the Baptist took the incarnate Son of God and dunked him into the water, baptizing him, that as he came up, the voice uh, from heaven spoke of the Father. You remember what he said? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. For the one who pleases God receives wisdom and knowledge and joy. You see, what Solomon wants us to understand is that you can't fix your life in this world, no matter what avenue or way you may try, but Jesus Christ can. He's the one who pleased the Father. Solomon began his message, his introduction, in chapter 1, verse 15, with that proverb, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Would you remember what the preacher John the Baptist began his message with in Luke chapter 3 as the forerunner of Christ drawing from Isaiah. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Listen, and the crooked shall become straight. You know who he's preaching about? Jesus. Jesus. Solomon says, there's nothing that I can do to to get this world back to where it needs to be. That's bad news. But the good news is someone came who can, and that someone is Jesus. It's Jesus. And by faith in Jesus, we arrive at the conclusion that Solomon draws, we can be brought near to God again. From Genesis 3 onward, the question of the Bible is, how do we get back to God? How do we get back to the Garden of Eden? How do we enjoy a relationship with God? Jesus is that answer. Paul would write in Ephesians 2 that by faith in Jesus Christ, we're brought near to God. He would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. But Peter, oh Peter, Peter gets it right and gets it best, I think. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might bring us to God. To God. That we would be with Him. Because He is the one who pleased God. And the beauty of faith in Jesus then is that we all can enjoy through Him the blessings of God. Psalm 1611 In His presence is the fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Colossians 2-3, in Christ we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Matthew 6, Jesus said that we can, through Him, lay up for ourselves treasures not on earth, but in heaven, where they will never be taken away from us. This is the Gospel of Ecclesiastes. That in a life that is broken, a life that is bent, Jesus stepped into this world in order to set it straight. And by faith in Him, as the one who pleased God, we receive the enjoyment and blessings that He has secured. So what does that mean? Well, it simply means that if your life today seems to be a striving after the wind, a shepherding the wind, a case in futility, it means that you're apart from God in some fashion. It means that you're, you're away from Him. And maybe it's an issue of fellowship as a believer. Maybe you're backslidden. You're living a life under the sun that will never satisfy. You're going down all the roads that Solomon took, trying to fill the void in your soul, but you're coming up empty over and over and over again. But maybe, 
Maybe it's an issue of faith today. You're separated from God. You're apart from Him because you have no faith in Jesus Christ. Life is meaninglessness. So hear the message of the preacher of Ecclesiastes today. Come to the one who pleased God. Place your faith in Him. Come to Christ today and be saved. His message is simple. Turn from your sin and self and find in Jesus what will satisfy your soul. If your life today is simply a striving after the wind, the best thing that I can tell you today is come to the one who the wind obeys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Father, we live in a world that is broken and marred by sin. We live in a world where life is hard many times. There's much before us that is crooked and bent. Father, many times we do all that we can to try to make it straight, but in our own energy, it's vanity. It's futile. But today we've heard, we've heard the gospel of Ecclesiastes, that there is a way, there is one who pleased God. And by Him, we're brought near. And in Him, we enjoy all the blessings of life. Father, I pray today that we would not waste our lives striving. We wouldn't waste our lives trying to catch the wind. But rather that we would give them over to Christ and find in Him our all in all. Father, I pray for the believer today who's struggling, who perhaps is far away, who is walking, walking far from Christ, that today, Lord, they would turn and repent and draw close again. And I pray for the one who does not yet know Him. They've tried everything else, they've looked to everyone else, but their soul still is unsatisfied. I pray today they would look to Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you work now? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.